Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Uh, while they're doing that, everyone else can be turning to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, as we will be looking at verses 1 through 4 together this morning. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. So I'll read that passage for us, and then we'll pause and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we just want to pause and stop and ask for your help once more. It's such a privilege to be able to do this every single week, to know that you hear us when we call out to you, when we cry out to you asking for your help as we come before the truth of your word. We're so thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place and because of what he has accomplished you have sent your spirit to dwell within us and so Father we ask you to be at work through the truth of your word by the power of your spirit this morning for our good and for your glory. Father this passage this morning is weighty to think about. What it's calling us to is uh, difficult, and we're going to need each other to live this out in a way that's faithful to you, in a way that is good for us eternally. And so, Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to accomplish what only you can accomplish within us, for one another, that's going to be necessary for us to be able to live these things out. And so, Father, we're looking to you as our only hope this morning. I pray that you would guide my words, that you would uh, guard us all, even my own heart, from being led astray, that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you, and we pray that you would do so for your glory and for our good, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you or I hear a message, or if we hear a warning, all of us have to decide what we're going to do with that message or that warning, right? Even that's one of the, speaking of Mother's Day, right? Mothers have to be really good at that, right? When they hear their child say something, they have to make a decision about how serious it is in the moment. And we all have a, a grid we run through, kind of a, a decision matrix that we have when we hear a message or we hear a warning and we decide whether or not we need to take action when we hear it, subconscious level, based on uh, mainly the following criteria. Who is saying it? 
what are they saying? What is the content of the message? So who's saying it? What are they saying? When are they saying it? And finally, how are they saying it? All right, so who, what, when, and how? And if any one of those particular uh, questions is answered with a seeming lack of importance, then our response is going to be more muted or indifferent than we would be if it seemed to be more important. So let let me give a few examples. If one of my daughters, who will remain unnamed, but let's just say she has an interesting relationship with creepy crawly critters, right? Doesn't like them. In our family, if we hear her let out a blood-curdling scream and come sprinting into the living room, shouting, there's a huge spider in my room, we're basically going to just sit there. (laughs) And we'll probably walk into the room and we'll see a spider dangling from somewhere that's about the size of a uh, head of a pen that you can probably gently just kind of crush between your fingertips. However, if I were to come sprinting down the stairs and running into the living room with a terrified look on my face, screaming, there's a huge spider in my room, they would probably put a hole through the wall, running outside, and light the house on fire on their way out, right? Right? It's a totally different category based on who is saying it, right? It's urgent. It's, it's right now. It's, that's when it's happening. The, the person saying it is not normally afraid of spiders or anything like that. And so uh, it's a serious message. The person saying it is uh, 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 raising the, the elevation of what's happening. It's a serious issue. And so we respond in a particular way. Or just to give one more example, if NASA announced tomorrow they discovered a comet that is on a collision course with Earth, There's no question about it. They've run the math a thousand times. It's going to impact earth. That would sound concerning. But then if they said it won't be until the year 5,369, we would probably just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, that's interesting. Right? It wouldn't change your day-to-day life. It wouldn't change how you lived your life tomorrow because the when of the question It's not urgent. It's not happening right now. It's not something you have to worry about. So we don't have time to go through every example of how that works. But you get the sense of what I'm saying. If all four of those questions are seem to be serious or important, right? Who is saying it? What are they saying? When did they say it? And how did they say it? If all four of those communicate utmost urgency, then we have to decide what action we are going to take in response to it. We can't simply be indifferent. But you see, that's the exact argument the author of Hebrews is making up to this point in the book. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he told us that that long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, you see that there in verse 2? In these last days. So there's the when. It's right now. These are the last days. We're living in them ever since Jesus came and dwelt among us and died on the cross in our place and rose from the grave. We have been living in the last days. And so 
What is being said in verse 2 is for our day. So that answers the when question. It's for us right now. It's not for later. It's, it's urgent. It's, it's now. So that's when. But what does verse 2 go on to say? In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. There's the who question. Who is it that's saying these things? It is the divine, eternal Son of God. And the rest of chapter 1, as we've looked at over the past two weeks, is building on who is this Son that has spoken. And what the author has told us, you can, you can see it there in the second half of verse 2, moving down into verses 3 and 4. This Son is the one who was appointed to be the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the world was created, the entire world. Verse 3, he, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact, rep uh, oh, sorry, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the, the glorious, he is the glorious, divine, eternal Son of God who never had a beginning, who chose to come in the flesh to dwell among us. He is the one who has spoken. And the rest of Hebrews 1 says he is much superior to the angels. The angels spoke in times past, but I'm telling you, he says now the Son has arrived and he is more glorious, more majestic by orders of magnitude by the angels. In fact, he created the angels. He holds the angels together. He is sovereign over the angels and they are his messengers. They are his servants sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. You see, that is... That is who has spoken? Jesus is the greater one. He is the superior one. And so there's already a weightiness connected to what has been said, right? It's for us right now. And it is the eternal son of God. He is the one who is speaking. So that's the wind and the who. But now in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the author is going to remind us of the how and the what. How is it being communicated and what is it that is being communicated? And then when we put all four together, when, who, how, and what, you're going to see that the author of Hebrews is calling us to respond to something so glorious as this. So, to better track with the argument the author is making, we're actually, I know this is going to sound strange, but trust me, it's going to work. We're actually going to have to work our way backwards through the passage. So we're going to start at the end with verse 4 and kind of move back up, and we're going to end at the end of the message on verse 1. And the reason for that is just to get a little technical for a minute. You see chapter 2, verse 1 says, therefore. And so what he says in verse 1 is based on everything he has said before in chapter 1. But then the very next verse, verse 2, says for or because, and then he gives the reasons why verse 1 is true. So everything is about verse 1. Everything is supporting and giving argument for verse 1. So let's look at all those reasons. Let's look at all those arguments. And then let's look at how the author of Hebrews brings it home and challenges us and calls us to respond to these truths in verse 1. You see, the author is going to plead with us to respond with urgency to the message that has been spoken. 
And he wants to give us now two more reasons. He gave us the when, he gave us the who, but now he's going to tell us how it was communicated, what was communicated, and how we must respond. So that's the simple outline for this morning. That's how we're going to work through. Number one, how was the message communicated? Number two, what is the message? Number three, how must we respond? So let's look at that first question. How was the message communicated? So as I said, we're going to start at the end. So we need to look at the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. So the second half of verse 3 says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God's Spirit distributed according to his will. See, what's happening here in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 is the author of Hebrews is providing three witnesses for us to say this is, this is how we can know that this message is reliable. There are three witnesses. One, it was declared at first by the Lord. We've already seen much of that in chapter 1, right? It was declared by Jesus. It is through the Son of God that, uh, that God has now spoken. It is through Christ that he has spoken. It was declared at first by the Lord. So witness number one. Witness number two. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Now you can read about this in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus walked around with people on this planet teaching them and instructing them. He chose 12 men, disciples, to carry on this message. He invested in them. He taught them his truth, this gospel message. So when it says, and it was attested to us by those who heard, the author of Hebrews is saying, those who Jesus taught, taught them. It was passed down. It was attested. It was verified by those whom Jesus taught. And we know that Jesus did this. He, we see it throughout the gospels, but he specifically says he does this and why he does this in John chapter 17 verses 6 through 8, and then verse 20. Let, let me read that for us. John 17, 6 through 8. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So do you hear that? He says, I have given them the words that you gave me. He has invested in these men. He's, he's taught them. He's instructed them. He's discipled them. And then a little bit later in John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus says this. He's been praying. And then he says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's taught the disciples. He wants the disciples to teach others. He wants then those to teach others and for it to pass down from one generation to the next. And here in the second half of verse 3, when it says it was attested to us by those who heard, it is that second-hand eyewitness account. Jesus declared it to the disciples, and now the disciples have declared it to the people who are living uh, in the location where the letter to the Hebrews was written. You know, it's astounding to think about. It's one of the things I love about church history because often, you know, we, 
we don't think much about the time between what we read about in the Bible and then kind of our day when it comes to Christianity. But we have written accounts of men who were discipled by men whom the disciples taught. All right, so I know that might sound confusing, but let me clarify. So John, John was a, uh, one of the apostles, right? He wrote the gospel according to John. And one of his uh, disciples was Polycarp. John taught a man named Polycarp. And then Polycarp passed down that message to another man named Irenaeus. And we have the writings of Irenaeus, a man who walked and lived with a man who was taught by John himself, John who was taught by Jesus himself. Right? It's astounding to think about. This is what Irenaeus says about Polycarp. Remember, John sat at the, uh, Polycarp sat at the feet of John himself. This is what Irenaeus says. I am able to describe the very place in which the blessed Polycarp sat as he discoursed, and his goings out and his comings in, and the manner of his life and his physical appearance and his discourses to the people, and the accounts which he gave of his intercourse with John and with the others who had seen the Lord. And as he remembered their words and what he had heard from them concerning the Lord and concerning his miracles and his teaching, having received them from the eyewitnesses of the word of life, Polycarp related all things in harmony with the scriptures. Right? Wouldn't that be astounding? Right? It would be astounding to sit at the feet of Jesus. It would be astounding to sit at the feet of John. It would be astounding to sit at the feet of Polycarp. Uh, right? But I'll take Irenaeus. Right? It's, it's astounding to think about this unbroken chain of attestation, of reliability of what had been spoken. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about there in the second half of verse 3. It was declared by the Lord. It's been attested to by those whom the Lord entrusted to. Then, then it's been entrusted to others. And then in, in verse 4, it's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, but if you don't believe any of that, let me add this one final witness, which is God himself. And when these men in whom Jesus entrusted these truths spoke, God bore witness to the reliability and truth of what they said by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And we see that play out throughout the book of Acts. In fact, one of the first times we have a proclamation of the gospel in Acts chapter 2, it's a well-known narrative, a well-known story of what happens there in Acts 2. The disciples are gathered in a room and all of a sudden the room is filled with what Acts 2 calls a rushing wind. Then divided tongues as a fire appear to them and rest on each one of them. And then Acts 2 tells us there were men from all nations, from all kinds of nations there in the room who all spoke different languages. And as this rushing wind filled the room, these tongue, divided tongues appearing as fire rested over the disciples and they began to speak. All the people in the room heard the message in their own native language and were able to perfectly understand it. See, that kind of supernatural happening is God attesting to the reliability and to the truth 
of what is being said. You see, that's why how it's said is important, right? If, if, so, if someone is speaking and there's a divided tongue of fire over their head and rushing wind filling the room when they talk and you can understand them in your language even though they don't normally speak that language, you should listen up probably, right? That, that's what's being said here. It's significant. God is joining what is being said with signs and wonders and miracles. And again, this is throughout the book of Acts. God uh, was at work in the lives of his disciples and apostles, working miracles through them that what they uh, were speaking might be accepted as his truth. In Acts 3, Peter uh, and uh, John heal a lame man in the name of Jesus, and he gets up and he walks. Peter is rescued, by, from, uh, rescued from prison by an angel. The angel just comes in and says, Peter, come with me. We're getting out of here. And, and he leaves. Later, Paul and Silas are in prison, and an earthquake shakes the foundation of the prison. And immediately, the prison doors fling open, and all their bonds just fell off of them. And, and they could have walked out of the prison. It was while they were singing hymns, but they decided not to because at the moment, because they didn't want the guard to be executed, and instead they led him to Jesus, right? So th this, these miraculous things happen over and over and over again. Paul, the apostle Paul, is stoned, it says, to the point of death, right? Big, huge rocks chunked at Paul. They thought he was dead. They drug him out of the city, and the next day he gets up and walks back in to the city, Paul raises a young man from the dead, and then later even Paul shipwrecked on an island, and a venomous snake bites his hand, and all the villagers, all the native people of the island know what that snake bite does, which is essentially immediate death, and Paul just shakes it off and keeps teaching. Right? His, the teachings of the apostles and the disciples were joined with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we could spend the rest of our time looking at all the examples of that, but Acts chapter 5 verses 12 through 16 summarizes it nicely. This is what it says. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." See, the whole point of what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is that this message that has been passed down is the reliable, true message. It was spoken by the Lord, right, which he has proven in chapter 1 to be the most powerful reality in the universe, superior to all, superior to the angels. This message is for us today. It is in these last days that it has been spoken. It has been proven to be true because it was faithfully passed down to others and joined by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the author of Hebrews is saying we better listen up. That's the when, that's the who, and that's the how it was communicated. But what is this message? And why is it worthy of such acclaim and attention. Well, for that, let's look at uh, verses 2 
and the beginning of, sorry, verse two and the beginning of verse three. So what is the message? This is the second question. What is the message? Beginning in verse two. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So right there in the first half of verse 3, we see the content of the message. It is about a great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the reality of the gospel. Now, it certainly includes all that Jesus spoke. But all that Jesus spoke and all of the Bible, for that matter, ultimately points to the reality of the gospel, that Jesus, the Son of God, would come as Messiah in the flesh, die on the cross in our place, and rise from the dead. This is the content of the message. This is the great salvation of which the author of Hebrews is speaking. And it is a great salvation. You and I were born as enemies of God. We were, according to Ephesians 2, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dwelling in the domain of darkness. That is who we are. But Jesus stepped onto the scene. He came to earth in the flesh, the divine eternal Son of God who is much superior to the angels, willingly took on flesh and laid down his life and drank the cup of wrath that we all deserved down to the bottom in our place that we might have eternal life. This is the great salvation. This is the content of the message that has been spoken right now in these last days through the Son, attested to by Jesus, by the disciples, and by God himself who accompanied this truth with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we need to listen. And we need to listen all the more because the author Hebrews says to us, look, in times past, the message, verse 2, the message declared by angels, even that proved to be reliable. And, and those who didn't heed that message received a just retribution. Now, what is this message that he's referring to? It's likely what the author of Hebrews is referring to is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. There are references in the New Testament that angels were involved in that process. So, for example, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Or we have in Stephen's uh, speech slash sermon in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. See, what the author of Hebrews is pointing to is the reality that even this law that was given by angels, it, it proved to be reliable. And when Israel disobeyed, punishment came. That is the story of Israel, right? Disobedience to this law until ultimately they were exiled from the promised land. 
They were removed from the land because of their continual disobedience. And so this message, this law given even by angels proved to be absolutely reliable. And their neglect of that message, their uh, ignoring of that message, their not keeping that message, as Stephen put it, resulted in them being removed from the land and being punished by God. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying to us, if that is true for the message declared by the angels, how much more will it be true of a message of salvation, of a great salvation, delivered to us by the eternal, glorious, superior Son of God? If we neglect and ignore that message, verse 3 says, there will be no escape for us. There is no other hope. If we neglect this great salvation spoken by the Son of God, then there will be no escape for us from the wrath that is to come upon us. Right? What does the word neglect mean? Right? If a, if a parent neglects a child, what does that mean? It means that they ignore them. They don't pay attention to them. They don't care for them. So when verse 3 says, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's what it means. It means we don't pay attention to it. We don't care about it. We're indifferent to it. And there will be serious consequences if we ignore this message of salvation. Namely, eternal wrath and condemnation separated from the loving presence of God in hell for all eternity. You see, this is a weighty message. This great salvation, it was spoken for us in our day, in our time, these last days. It was spoken by the eternal, glorious Son of God, he who is superior to the most powerful creatures in the universe, even angels. It was attested to by him. It was attested to by those in whom he entrusted the truth. It was attested to by God himself through signs and wonders. It is a weighty content of a message because eternity hangs in the balance. It is a great salvation is what is being communicated in this message. And therefore, for all of those reasons, it is a message that cannot be ignored. And that brings us to our final question for this morning. How must we respond? How must we respond? And we find that right there in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because of all of this, because of all that we've been looking at over the last two weeks and all that we've looked at up to this point in this sermon, because of all of this, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, let's just be sure we look carefully at what verse 1 is communicating to us here. The first thing I want us to see are two distinct phrases that kind of run together in this translation where it says, we must pay much closer attention. So, so that combination of words is actually two words in the original language. One means pay attention, and one means much closer. So the, the word for pay attention, 
that word in the original language is sometimes even translated devoted to. So for example, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul's giving instructions to Timothy and he says, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Some translations even render that. I want you to pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. Which, side note, by the way, it's why we read a psalm or another passage every week as a church. It's why we read the, summer, the sermon passage. We want to pay attention to, to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture. And so this phrase, this, when, when the author of Hebrews is saying, pay attention to, he, you, could, you could faithfully translate it, be devoted to what you have heard. Pay attention to it. Be devoted to it. Set your gaze on it. It's very similar to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19. Same word, by the way. Peter says, and we had the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. Devote yourself to it. Gaze on it. Look to it. So that's strong language already, right? Right? All, look, because of all this reality, because it's spoken now for our time by the Son of God, because it was attested to by God himself, by Jesus and those whom he passed it down to, because the content of the message is so serious, this great salvation, pay attention to it. Be devoted to it. But the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He adds another adjective. Much closer. Pay much closer attention. So what does that phrase, which is one word in the original language, mean much closer? Well, if you look at the other places in the New Testament, that same word is used. It's translated in different places in the New Testament as abundant, even greater. It's translated as supremely. And it's even translated as extremely. So think about that for a moment. The author of Hebrews is saying to us, therefore, we must be extremely devoted to what we have heard. We must be, we must supremely pay attention. We must devote ourselves to what we have heard. We must look to it Pay attention to it to the greatest degree possible. Why? Because if we don't, we're going to drift away from it. Look, this is, this is stunning and sobering language. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The first Sunday we were in Hebrews, I said one of the themes of Hebrews is that it's a book of movement. Throughout Hebrews, it speaks of followers of Christ that you need to be moving toward Jesus. And that if you're not moving toward him, you're going to be moving away from him. In other words, for the book of Hebrews and the New Testament for that matter, there is no neutral position. We're either moving toward Jesus or we're moving away from him. There is no real middle ground. 
this phrase drifting away was actually used to describe ships. It was a nautical term to describe a ship that whose anchor had failed or who had forgot to anchor in and the, the, ship, the, the, ship, the, the ship drifts away out to sea. The water just takes it away from dock or where it was supposed to be anchored in. And I know if you've grown up in church, you've likely heard this before, but here it is in black and white, right in front of our face in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. There is no neutral in the Christian life. We are either paddling upstream or we are being swept away. Those are the options. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to us, and the moment we stop paddling, the moment we stop striving, the moment we stop giving great attention to, paying supreme attention to, being extremely devoted to what we have heard, the moment we stop doing that, we start moving away from Jesus. That's what the author means by verse 1. Right? Or to make the same point using a different analogy, the Christian life is like driving up a steep hill. And you're either on the gas going up the hill, or if you let off the gas, you're going to start doing what? Rolling back down the hill. So the question for us this morning is, are we putting great effort into paying close and supreme attention to the Word of God in our lives? And I ask that as a personal question to you this morning. Because what the author of Hebrews is saying to you and to me, that if we are not devoting ourselves to the truth of God's word, if we're not paying close attention to what we have heard as it is recorded for us in scripture, if that's not true of you, then you right now are drifting away from Jesus. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to just say what the Bible says. And the scary part of this is that often when you first start drifting, you don't know it until you're much farther away than you ever intended to be. And the author of Hebrews is saying to us, the only way to keep that from happening is to continue to day by day by day, pay close attention to what we have heard and look to the truth of God's word. Make it a priority in your life to be in the word each and every day. But look, I want to be clear that the book of Hebrews as a whole doesn't see this as just an individual problem. This isn't just a challenge for you individually. Places tells us that this responsibility, that we have a responsibility to one another. And if you're beginning to drift away, that's my problem. And we need to do something about it. I need to do something about it. For example, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says this. Take care, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, believers. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
This is a group project. It is a group project to be sure that we continually remain devoted to the word of God. Or later in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So I'm not here to say just to you individually, be sure you don't neglect the word of God. Be sure you pay close attention to what you have heard. I am saying that, but I'm also saying, be sure the person sitting next to you does the same. It is our responsibility. So I want you to hear me this morning. By God's grace and by his grace alone, I and the other elders of the soon-to-be Lord willing established, the soon-to-be established Lord willing Christ Fellowship Leesville, we're going to keep our foot on the gas. We're not going to stop paddling by his grace. We're going to keep calling you. We're going to keep calling each other to remain devoted to the word of God because we don't want to see anyone drifting away, right? That's what God has called us to as your pastors. That's what God has called you to as covenant members who are committing to one another, to hold one another accountable for the glory of his name and for your eternal good. So by his grace, brothers and sisters, let's pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you have spoken in such a clear way that leaves us without doubt or question about what has been said and the importance and seriousness and weightiness of it. We thank you, Father, that, that we live in this day where the gospel is a reality, that you have spoken to us right here, right now in these last days. We thank you that you, you did so through your Son, through your glorious, majestic, worthy son. You could send no greater messenger than him. And you sent him to speak to us, both with the way he lived his life and with the words that he said. Father, you, you faithfully gave men to your son that he could pour his life into, that he could teach and instruct. And I'm so thankful for how you sustained uh, 11 of those men except Judas and brought Paul along to, to carry on this message to future generations. I'm thankful for how John passed it on to Polycarp and how Polycarp passed it on to Irenaeus and how Irenaeus passed it down to his disciples and generation to generation until we have it here today. And that that message was declared to be true and reliable by, by you joining it with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit. We're so thankful that you made clear that this is the message we need to heed. This message of great salvation that Christ has come to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom that belongs to you. And so, Father, by your grace, I pray that you would sustain us and keep us and that you would give us the discipline and the conviction to pay much closer attention to these words that we have heard. And I pray that it would shape us and transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus for the glory of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name.